Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to Prognosis. I'm Laura Carlson. It's day 76 since coronavirus was declared a global pandemic. Our main story? The U.S. seems to have finally gotten its testing operation on track. But it's still hard to find data on just how many tests are being done. So a volunteer group of journalists took up the challenge. Now, the group produces reports that are so reliable, even the White House depends on them. But first, here's what happened today. The U.S. drug giant Merck revealed its plans to develop a pill that will treat the coronavirus. The company is also working on two vaccines. Merck bought the rights to develop a promising antiviral drug that was discovered at Emory University. Over the past century, Merck has pioneered inoculations for diseases from Ebola to diphtheria. The company pledged that if they are able to make a coronavirus vaccine, they will work to make it accessible to anyone in the world who needs it. Wuhan The epicenter of China's coronavirus outbreak said it tested nearly 7 million people in 12 days. That's after a handful of infections prompted fears of a second wave and spurred a campaign to test the entire population. The 6.8 million nucleic acid tests uncovered 206 asymptomatic cases, according to Bloomberg calculations based on daily numbers released by the local health commission. And finally, researchers may have found a small piece of the puzzle about whether people with COVID-19 later become immune. An early draft of a study of hospital staff in northeastern France found that almost all doctors and nurses who got mild forms of COVID-19 produced antibodies that could prevent reinfection. The research by Institut Pasteur and University Hospitals in Strasbourg, addresses a crucial question regarding the new coronavirus. Whether people who had COVID-19, and especially those who didn't get severely ill, develop antibodies against the disease. As recently as April 24th, the World Health Organization said that there's no evidence yet that people who have recovered and have antibodies are protected from a second infection. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. 
And now, our main story. At the start of the coronavirus pandemic, the scant number of virus tests being conducted in the U.S. was a major fiasco. Now, though, most supply problems have been solved, and many more tests are being done throughout the country. But it's still hard to get a sense of just how many. Knowing who is being tested is essential for getting an accurate picture of the spread of the virus. But the government hasn't readily provided this data. Instead, experts, media outlets, and even the Trump administration have turned to a surprising source. A volunteer effort by a team of journalists called the COVID Tracking Project. Bloomberg News reporter Emma Court spoke with the project's co-founder, Alexis Madrigal, about why he decided to chase these numbers and what they're telling us about who the virus is affecting. Alexis Madrigal started paying close attention to the data on COVID-19 in early March. Alexis is a reporter for The Atlantic. He found that a month after the first confirmed case of COVID-19 in the U.S., the country's numbers on the infections were way too low. A friend of his from college, Jeff Hammerbacher, was also watching the subject closely. So they joined together to create the COVID Tracking Project. It's a volunteer-led effort based out of the Atlantic magazine that gathers state-level data about testing, cases, deaths, and hospitalizations. The project also tracks race and ethnicity data when possible. That's time-consuming work. In the early days, it was just Alexis, Robinson Mayer, his colleague at The Atlantic, Jeff, and some other volunteers, like co-founder Aaron Kassane. They were all working around the clock. I spoke with Alexis about the project. The data collection effort, you know, is not that difficult to do once, right? You know, you go to all these state state health department websites, you write down a bunch of information in a spreadsheet, um, you know, doing that one time, you know, anyone can imagine doing that. You know, lots of reporters have done this with different kinds of COVID-19 data, and you can, you can do it once. But now let's say you need to do it three times a day uh, for a month. You can't have the same person doing it like that. <laughs> no one person is going to survive that. No small team is going to survive that. The relentlessness of it, you know, is just too tough. So now you've got to create rules for how you're going to code certain types of information. The states are all reporting things in very, very different ways. And insofar as we can standardize those things, we try. You might imagine technology could be very useful in tracking COVID-19 data. But Alexis says it's actually a highly manual process. Volunteers pull the numbers and more volunteers double-check their work. This requires systems to ensure data quality and train new volunteers. Basically, a whole organization, complete with Slack and Google Docs. The data is collected from public health authorities via official reports, as well as news conferences, Twitter, and other sources. Jordan Gaspare, who produced this segment, is one of the many journalists from various outlets who contributed to this massive data collection effort. Alexis says that, in an ideal world, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention would be gathering and standardizing this crucial data, not an army of volunteers. In fact, he likes to call their group the Pirate CDC. 
you know, these systems for gathering data at a, you know, in a country as large as the United States with a healthcare system as fragmented as it is are just remarkably difficult. And a lot of it is voluntary reporting, which means, you know, even if the federal government says to states like, hey, can you please report all of your data to us? The hospitals in that state just may not do that. Um, they should do that, but they may not do that, you know. And uh, the same goes for like race and ethnicity data and things like that. People just don't fill it out. They don't fill out when they're ordering a test. They just don't fill out race and ethnicity on the form. And so the kind of data holes that begin, you know, with small actions, you know, down at the point of care blow up to you know, on the national scale to be these massive data holes that don't allow us to, to, you know, truly understand what's going on with the outbreak or, or how to respond to it. Even the Trump administration has cited numbers from the COVID tracking project, as my colleague Kristen V. Brown and I have reported. The White House released a nationwide testing strategy document in late April that credits data to Alexis and his colleagues' project. The Trump administration didn't return our request for comment about this or answer our questions about where its data is coming from. But the administration has previously released numbers on testing that roughly match up to the COVID tracking project's reporting. I asked Alexis if the federal government is using the project's data and whether the White House has its own source of COVID-19 information. What I choose to believe is that the federal government has data um, and that some of it is way better than ours even, but that perhaps our data has its own kinds of utility, like stretching back in time and standardizing in in certain ways and sort of allowing uh, the federal government to understand how the states are reporting this relative to how they are seeing data come in. I don't know. I mean, the the truth is I don't know the answer to these questions, but, but... you know, just having been around this testing data and talked to enough people who are in diagnostic labs and other kinds of reporting, I think there's a 0% chance the federal government has nothing. But the fact that there's nothing public means they probably don't have everything for whatever reason. All of this matters because widespread testing is understood to be key to measuring the number of COVID-19 cases and reopening the economy as safely as possible. Without mass testing, experts can't be confident in the number of cases that have been reported. And while the White House has long insisted that the U.S. has excelled at testing, getting a complete, up-to-date picture of how it's all going has often been difficult. We don't have a good idea of how many people are sick. (laughs) That's why. But part of what's happening is that, you know, New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, you know, the New York metro area had a blazing outbreak that caught the entire uh, nation, entire world uh, by surprise because of the botched uh, early testing efforts in the United States. They were only testing very sick people until, you know, one out of every two people was coming back uh, positive. Now what's happening is the outbreak is growing outside of those um, three places, but we... But we have better eyes on it because there's more testing capacity now than there was in the beginning of March. Testing grew to become one of the biggest crises in the U.S. in the first months of COVID-19. And even though the country's testing abilities have improved, many problems have lingered, including around capacity. I would like to say that 
we had far-seeing vision and we of course knew that this would be the crucial issue of this entire pandemic, but it's not true. I mean, for me, it's 100% not true. My reporting partner, Rob Meyer at The Atlantic, he immediately identified, he was like, this is the most important number in America right now is how many people have been tested. Um, he did say that at the time. Uh, and so I will say perhaps Rob knew that this would be this big. But to be honest, in the weeks moving through March, when there was all this talk about the scale up and blah, 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 I did not think that it would that testing would continue to be a number that was so deeply important. I really didn't. I thought that the project would probably wrap up um, sometime in April either because the CDC came or it just didn't matter anymore because the testing availability was so enormous. And then basically every report that came out in April basically said, like, actually, we need millions of tests to safely reopen this country. And like when every expert is saying something like that, you go like, well, damn, I guess this really is it. The U.S. can now do about 400,000 tests a day. Less than half the 900,000 one group of experts says is needed. That's the case even as states push towards reopening their economies, sending people back to work and school and eating at restaurants. So here's where we are with testing right now in the U.S. We tested less than 2,000 people total by March 6th. You know, we entered April doing, you know, just about 100,000 tests a day. Uh, We left April doing, you know, about 200,000 tests a a day. Uh, But most of April was a big, long plateau, actually. Uh, And it was only really at the end of the month um, that testing started to pick up. You know, most testing now is done uh, by LabCorp and and Quest uh, and other, you know, big sort of commercial laboratories. Alexis says he's a believer that Once the American innovation system gets cranking along, testing numbers will eventually take off. Over the next few months, he says we'll get there, maybe even stand out on a global level. But Alexis also says it's possible that by trying to bring on testing while also reopening, there will be massive outbreaks and major damage done along the way. That's kind of how it looks to me. It looks like a race between sort of our innovative capacities, you know, and our kind of reactionary impulses to just try and get everything to go back to normal, even though it's clearly not going to happen. That was Emma Court, and that's our show today. For coverage of the outbreak from 120 bureaus around the world, visit Bloomberg.com coronavirus. And if you like the show, please leave us a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It's the best way to help more listeners find our global reporting. The Prognosis Daily Edition is produced by Topher Forges, Jordan Gaspure, Magnus Henriksen, and me, Laura Carlson. Today's main story was reported by Emma Court. Original music by Leo Sidrin. Our editors are Francesca Levy and Rick Shine. Francesca Levy is Bloomberg's head of podcasts. Thanks for listening.
What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.